and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name is Peter Bond. I've read every book in the main series with me. My name is my friend Close. Oh my gosh, not, I gotta do it again. But... Really stumbled through that. And plus I was going into India's intro, you know? I don't know. It's yeah, just, yeah. It's such a canned thing, really, you know? Except when mm-hmm. I totally fuck it up. <laughs> Hello and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name is Peter Bond and with me today is uh joshua baker yeah it's me the man period it's like 6 a.m i do not have the energy to come up with a fun nickname for joshua we're gonna go with his full name so that's what we did so uh we're doing another epigraphs episode exploring epigraphs i believe is what we had settled on yes and that means today we had we our gardens of the moon is out and about but today is a you know, today we're we're letting our hair down and going to Seven Cities for the first time. That's right, we cracked open Dead House Gates. We're going to take a peek inside these tattered pages and uh, see what's going on. And if you stay after the music, stay after the credits, what's that? They're going to be a little, uh, we're going we're, we're gonna to drink coffee, <laughs> shoot a little shit, and talk about Adam Sandler's recent Halloween comedy. Smash hit. Smash hit's the word you're looking for. Hubie Halloween. But the Deadhouse Gates epigraphs is, you know, that's what we're here for. You know, that's that's what's on the title card. And then what's that is like we're sneaking it in. We're sneaking it under the plate, you know. For the record, I'm here for Huey Halloween and no other reason. And the epigraphs are a bonus. <laughs> yes. All right. So shall we get shall we get into it? Um, let me just we ask. We doing broad strokes first. Yeah, some let, specifics. Let me just what ask you, you a broad impression up top. So I I reread all these epigraphs, searched through them maybe about two day, two or three days ago. Well, well, what did you take away from it when you did it? I, you know, my the main thought I had while reading this actually was about I was I was pondering what effect the large gap between books had uh how that had impacted steve when he was writing this because i gotta tell you i i personally think these epigraphs are far different from the ones we read through in gardens of the moon i thought they were really different too it's so interesting you say that yeah i keep going yeah so it it really felt like in gardens of the moon Steve was Steve doesn't he those epigraphs are great going back and reading right but I really didn't feel reading reading the first time or in our reread episode I didn't really feel much like they did anything for the new reader versus Deadhouse Gates there is a lot of times that it's just like all right now you're gonna need to know this or you already should have known it, and now I'm feeling it. Like, there was so much more expository-style ones. I thought the same exact thing, Josh. And the thing is, we had... We, I mean, the Gardens of Moon episode is not that long ago. I mean, we literally yeah. just did it. But I, too, and I, I almost was like, I gotta go back, because the, they can't be that much of a break between these two. But maybe it is the no. distance between writing one and two that you're talking about. I think it could be distance. I also think it could be that Steve just jumps to a whole new continent and we need to we need to know so much more about Melaz and politics things like that so he maybe maybe he was just like you know what you need this here I, I agree my first impression actually was that the gardens of the moon ones were much more like the late later part of the yes. series that because yeah. like the a lot mostly the later in the series you go the more just like dream like and expository well, like, and i'm and, I'm paying really close attention now in, uh, what are we reading? Memories of, no. Memories of Uh, Tides. Midnight Tides. Midnight Tides. 
reading Midnight Tides now, and since we did the first episode, I'm really paying attention, and it's it's night and day, Dead House Gaze versus Midnight Tides right now. So different. How I feel. Yeah. Although it should be noted, in Gardens of the Moon, there is some, you know, there's some expository ones, yes. you know, especially when yes, you think yes, about yes. that Emperor's Dead one, and then a few others stand out to me introducing salient points about some of the high mages, I believe. It's been mm-hmm. like two months, cut me some slack, but yeah. I, th- I think a great example, and I'm not, I, you know, I don't want to jump ahead, but like the third chapter's... Uh, yes, yes, yes. Is literally just a description of what the red blades are. It's like, yo, that's, that, that's the one that made me stop and go, like, what's up with this? Yeah, yo, it's like, yo, I don't know if you know what the red blades are. Let me just tell you. Do you know what I mean? Which is like good. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think you know it's a good introduction to them. Just you know, now, it's a different use of the apparatus. Something else to go with that that I think is quite interesting, in my opinion, is uh, I mean, two central characters in this book are Duagur and Haboric. And yeah. so it almost makes sense to me that we've got two historians as these central characters. And I don't know if you noticed, a good number, especially as we get through, are attributed to the two of them. And there's actually another person that I was that I caught was like, oh, that's cool. That uh, Oh, Bidithal gets quoted later, too. Yeah, but the start of yeah we get Duiker and Haboric in this. But no, Duiker, du- 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 Diker, you see his, he he writes a lot of these histories, and it is interesting. Uh, and then, spe- and Haboric, too, I really love, um, maybe we'll circle back to it, but the, uh, chapter eight opens with uh, Haboric. Yes, yes. Me- mentioning Haboric and his history, conspiracies in the Imperium. And I guess it's more- We're going to get to that, because I, I want to talk about that so badly. Well, let's wait for that, if you can. All right, all thought, right, but- all right, all right. I think we got some, yeah, maybe we, maybe we start crank- cranking through and- chronologically if that's what we want to do then i mean i i I think all i was gonna say about the haboric history and the conspiracy one is that i think it's just interesting to see an insight because a lot of the discussion about what haboric has done is always Mm -hmm. like off you know it's like when people talk about their past in the series it's usually pretty cryptically or somewhat a fuse story or like they're hiding something where this is like it's almost like you're reading more directly about and like you're reading the actual history that was declared like a subversive text or like do you mean that was like yeah a problem you know I love that. So let me hit you with this as a way maybe we can talk about this. I really feel strongly after looking at my notes, I feel like there are three distinct categories in this one of types of epigraphs. Yeah, I remember pitching some categories in this one last time, but I'd love to hear yours. So lay them on me, buddy. We've, we've just hit the first one, right? Which is uh, these very anecdotal, almost almost like us being fed information ones, right? Sure. Okay. Then I want to say there is an abundance. And I say that because I, I, in my notes, there are like eight chapters I didn't write about. And I know what it is. There's a bunch that are about the Path of Hands. There are a lot of Path of Hands. I wanted to especially, talk about that. Especially as we get to the end. Now, I'll tell you this. I had forgotten the Path of Hands. So when we, I think the prologue mentions it. No, chapter one mentions it. And I was like, shit, I forgot that completely. So we got Path of Hands ones. And the third one, I'm going to have a kind of catch all of like obtuse shit that now I'm like, hey, that's really cool. Like, like, like full on. You're going to love this on the reread. I'm, I'm excited and, to hear about those. But I, yeah. I just want to quick mention the Path of Hands thing, because the Path of the Hands thing really also stood out to me. 
I mean, chapter one starts about a path of hands poem, and it also includes the line, a cloying, a cloying claim to ascendancy, which I think is just great. And cloying is just such, uh, you know, great language. And yes. And what I was going to, what was further I was going to highlight is that, um, you know, I think I mentioned it recently on some show we did. I think maybe I forget, but I often forget the path of hands is a part of Dead House Gates, you know, especially when you have the, the chain of dogs, which is such a big storyline. And then Felicin mm-hmm. really bears the emotional weight of that novel in a lot of ways, you know, um, yeah. you know, I don't know. It just slips under the radar. But, you know, I guess when I think about it and I was reading these poems, I do see how it thematically binds into those other two storylines about mm-hmm. being on dis- ascendancy or on, on the verge of transcending yourself into something greater, which is, of yeah. course, what Shaikh does and what Coltane and the Chain of Dogs do when they become such a legend on Seven Cities, do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and I think that's just part of the history and the texture of this continent that we're introduced to is this place where people are kind of forged and make themselves, you know? Well, and I really got to say, it's crazy to me that we both kind of forget about it because like thinking on it more now, I mean, so much is set off by that. Without the Path of Hands, we don't have Fiddler re-enlisting. Yeah. Okay? We don't have Mappo and Acarium getting introduced to the story and then actually saving those dogs, which become such a, still are such a part of this crazy story. Doggos. Um, we got a whole dog yeah. exposition chapter. Uh, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have Sorry and Crocus, now Cutter, like, you know, kind of going on their path and growing. I don't know. There's just so much from that that I just completely forgot about. It's awesome. The thing is, I think the reason it can kind of get forgotten for me is that it has such a kind of, like, it's this whole Seven Cities-based plotline, but really the plotline's, I guess, supposed to be about them trying to get to the Empress, and then, yes. like, kind of swerves back into a imperial politics at the very end of it after we just did this Path of Hands thing, so... It's true, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's mm. it, I, it's definitely somewhat confusing as a plotline, I feel, like, as, like, a C, B plot for the book, but right, anyway, right. we're really kind of off in the own zone. So why don't we why yeah. don't we jump in, and I just want to mention, shout out that the prologue is once again quoting Bridge burners by talk the younger i'm sure you yes, noticed yes yes i did but i actually liked this one and i liked how short it was i thought it was a very crisp opening yeah it is very the short first... and and then especially Good. when you get into the prologue this prologue sets such a strong tone for the book i think yes that it doesn't yes. really need to do a lot of tonal work the prologue because we're about to like really fucking hit the pavement you know yeah it was uh i don't know i really liked it um i'll read it out because i think it's i think it's such a good one what see you in the horizon's bruised smear that cannot be blotted out by your raised hand. And like, I don't understand it, but I vibe with it in a major way. Um, and that's again by Talk the Younger. And, and, so, I, and, and, yeah. and I think that's how you described how I feel about a lot of Steve's poems or like some of the weird imagery. I don't know really, really if I get it, but I'm vibing and I don't know if I need to get it. Like, I'm just good to like chill and sit in the mystery, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, I, oh man, there's a, I can, I actually wrote down, because it feel, it, like we said earlier, it feels like so much of this one is taken up with anecdotes that I, I actually really, really relished the, the few epigraphs that were pure poetry. Same. Um, and it's a jump ahead, but at chapter 17 is one of the only other ones that is just like, beep, uh, like yes. crazy. However, I am not, I wrote, I am not into this one on my notes. Oh, it's not great, but I, I I think it's it's still like it's not great to think about, but it's powerful nonetheless. All right, let's just, uh, let's jump there and let's let's. Talk I'm, about I'm it here. So. I'm here. You so got 17, it. Seventeen. Yeah, it's. I'll read it. 
one who has many, on the blood trail, came hunting his own voice. Savage murder, sprites buzzing in the sun, came hunting his own voice. But Hood's music is all. He heard the siren song called Silence. I think called Silence is just beautiful, personally. Mm. It is. It reminds me of a... We, we felt a similar way about a Gardens of the Moon epigraph that kind of ended with a kicking, you know, like, because sometimes Steve saves something for the last line or so that recontextualizes a lot of the language earlier in the poem. So, yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted to highlight the, uh, you know, I know we just jumped to, uh, jumped towards the end, but I... There's actually, no rules here. There's no rules. That's there, right. AJ, AJ's got no power on exploring epigraphs. He cannot bind us. That's fucking right. This is an independent production, you know? Thanks for editing the episode. <laughs> Thank you, AJ. (laughs) Book one opens with uh, this really, really great epigraph. Here we go. He swam at my feet, powerful arms in broad strokes, sweeping the sand. So I asked this man, what seas do you swim? And to this he answered, I have seen shells and the like on this desert floor. So I swim this land's memory, thus honoring its past. Is the journey far? queried I. I cannot say, he replied, for I shall drown long before I am done. And I really love this one. It's the opening of book one here. And uh, I think it's because, especially since we just read House of Chains, like I just feel like we're kind of we have this seven I, I still have some of the seven cities dust on me you know yeah 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 and, and like i think this poem is like such a great introduction to the seven cities setting which um is so different than genabacus or uh, leather where we are now right and yeah, like yeah they talk about obviously they're evoking steve's invoking the sea which comes up near the end of house of chains but also when you're speaking about memories and and the past i think of this line so i swim this land's memory thus honoring its past you know i kind of feel like that one sentence kind of summarizes what seven cities is all about do you know what i mean yeah this kind of uh, yeah it, this intersection of the past and the present and, and, and how you're kind of trapped in them do you know what i mean i feel like when i think about seven cities it, it has to do with kind of the weight of history being borne by these people no i'm with you i actually was just thinking well uh how excited i am to kind of eventually reread dead house gates because i have such an appreciation now for the people of seven cities for the land of raraku like i i know so much more about it and i understand some of its intricacies i it's such a cool such a cool place. And like you said, it's so beyond different than... Uh, I'll use Genabacus as an example. Because even though Genabacus has civilizations, right? They are so many and they're so disparate that I, I just feel like they they don't have that shared history like Seven Cities does, you know? And that's such a such a cool thing. It's a real contrast. And especially since in Genabacus, we spend so much time in Darugistan as yes. opposed to Seven Cities, which does really kind of span a lo- much larger parts of the continent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to talk real quick about, because we're just going to kind of, I think, blast through some chapters. I want to talk about chapter five, because I got to tell you, 
I didn't give a shit about Chapter 5 when I read this book, but that's because I didn't know that there was a Bakarol that we were traveling with who, if memory serves... Moby? He's a soul... Moby? Is he... Was he a soul taken? I know he's now the guardian of an Azath house. Yeah. And I feel like the reason why is that he was... A soul taken or a I don't, or I d- I don't or believe so- he is a soul taken. Not from there my was memory. something about him that was weird at the end. He was like going to go through a change or something, and they the, sent him the Azath health. Or I think something. he's like a bad bitch, is what you said. I believe he. Well, I mean, it is known that Moby's a bad bitch. <laughs> he did. You don't. But take I no was shit. just like, I know. I I love it, but I also love this. This is the kind of shit I love. If ever there is book to come out that is just like. A collection of articles from fantasy magazines or journals. Oh, I love that. Because be... it plugs a book by Baruch. Baria, yeah, yeah. You should, if for, for further reading, check out Baruch's 321st Treatise. And I'm like, that's incredible. Yes, I do actually want to read Baruch's entire article on Baccarol Anatomy. I really like that. I really like because it just makes the world feel bigger. And, and I don't it know. It fleshes it out so much. Yes. And I, I, you know, I know you skipped there. I just wanted to jump even to uh, the second chapter there where this is, you know, and mentions the tra- like it says uh, the tragedy of the Aaron High Command, you know, it talks about. Yes. And I think it's uh, the closest Steve gets to, I love Dune, and I hope we get to talk about it on the show one day. And Mm -hmm. um, in Dune, you know, Frank Herbert really makes use of setting the epigraphs to, like, create a sense of dread and inform the readers about what has what has happened in the sense of what has already happened in the story. Do you mean? Right, right, Be- Because right. the epigraphs are coming from the future. And obviously this epigraph is coming from the future oh, too. Oh, right, I remember that. I remember reading the bit of Noon and saw that. Yeah, and, and in this it says something, it says the Aaron High Command was rife with treachery, dissension, and rivalry and malice. Which we don't even know the full extent of when we read that sentence. Yeah, the, we just know they're incompetent. The assertion, really the, the assertion that the Aaron High Command was ignorant of the undercurrents in the countryside is at best naive and at worst cynical in the extreme, and that's from a book called The Shaikh Rebellion. And I think what's great about that is because I don't know, it's just start, it's starting to introduce those doubts and thoughts, you know. And it's one of those things that when you reread it, you're like, okay, yeah, well, obviously, you know. But it, I, I, you, I, don't, I just kind of like I just kind of like hearing that. What were you gonna say, bro? I just don't know how I'm gonna reread this book and the chapters in the Chain of Dogs, knowing how awful the Aaron High Command is. You know what I mean? Like mm. I just, it's gonna be really hard for me to do. I think because throughout the book, I felt confident that they were bad, but I did not know that bad. Yeah, like kind of shitty or corrupt or something. Not like yeah, not no. like wholly evil in and the most incompetent ever yeah so the start of book two is another uh, tone setting one i have walked old roads this day that became ghosts with coming night and were gone to my eyes with dawn such was my journey leagues across centuries in one blink of the sun It literally feels like we're just hearing the end of House of Chains there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because we, we experience, like, centuries through the eyes of Lorik when he goes back in time. We see these, like, you know, countless troops from all across time in Rariku. It's That's really what it made me think about. Mm. It really made me think about, 
uh, people transitioning and, and crossing such spans and, and, and the journeys they go on, because a lot of people have d- journeys across sand and a, a, a great distance, you know, almost mm-hmm. all the characters in Deadhouse Gates are on the path to cross, you know, literally a lot of ge- geographic distance, but often a lot of, uh, you know, emotional, metaphorical, whatever you want to say, distance, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. All right. So moving on to the past uh, this in- and we're, we're kind of through book one. What's what's another epigraph stood out to you, buddy? Well, I really want to talk about number six because so number six is by Duiker and it talks about Dasim Alter and him being a follower of Hood. And that's just so interesting to me because I I feel like I still I'm on the cusp of getting Dasim Alter, right? I still barely understand who he was at all, right? Like right now, the only thing I can say confident is that he was the first sword. Is that the word we use? First sword. He was the first sword for Emperor Kalenved. Yep. What I don't know is that he's actually dead because who is even actually dead ever in this series unless we literally see them get murdered in front of our eyes. And even then they could ascend for all we know. So I don't know that he's dead, but that's all I know about him. But the problem is that he pops up everywhere. And I don't know if he was loyal to Kellenved. I don't know if he turned. I don't know if he what, what part he played in all these assassinations, which by the way, that part coming up, that Horboric thing in two chapters about the assassinations, I'm, I just have, I want to know that so badly. Like, I want to see that night where they return. So this is interesting, and let's just put it on the show because, like, you know, life's short. So that night is actually dramatized in... Is Ian, that Night of Knives? That's Ian Cameron Elselman's first novel, so The Night of Knives. That's, that's the book that um, one of the readers recommended me to read because he said it would really help me understand some things. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's worth talking about, and we're on, we're on the Patreon zone, so maybe our patrons will have some opinions about it, but when I first read the series, I read read the first five books then i read knight of knives then i read bone hunters then i read return of the crimson guard then i read reaper scale then i read stone wielder then okay. i read books eight through ten so the, the recommendation i got was just the first thing to read knight of knives in between five and six yeah so looking back on that decision to weave those three esselmont books in i think it was mostly in my opinion I I really enjoyed some of those books, but I didn't I don't know how much it added outside of Return of the Crimson Guard, which I think I I kind of get the argument for putting it in the main series read. And the thing and is, Josh, the, the Crimson the Crimson Guard is the thing with Caledon Brood, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're somewhere. And um, the the Knight of Knives is so short, Josh. So the thing is, I like Knight of Knives is like two hundred pages or something. You can like you oh, could, okay, you could yeah. read it today. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whereas the other ones are, are, are much are kind of more properly novel sized. I mean, they're shorter than I think main series entries, but um, I don't know. I, I would love to hear what our listeners have to think about it. I don't think I would I would t- like I think at most we could talk about you reading Night of Knives and Return of the Crimson Guard and you kind of then bringing this perspective that Josh and so that uh, AJ and India wouldn't have of having weaved in that. That sounds cool. these Esselmont books. So uh, I'm open to it, but I'd like to hear what you think and what our listeners think. So what's your impression of maybe weaving two bonus books in? I could do it uh, if they're not as as I've heard that the prose is more approachable in many ways than Erickson can be. 
Oh yeah, dude, and it, it's interesting. Uh, we're, you know, uh, we're launching kind of an Esselmont read through near the end of this year. I don't know if you know. I told you that, but no, I don't know anything. I just show up. Well, you know, Iskar Jarek, who we do the spoiler cast with, I'm, we're going to yeah. read through the six Esselmont novels of the Malazan Empire Ooh, throughout. Very um, cool. Yeah, we're going to do it about every two, three months. So yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I think I can weave the first two in. That sounds interesting. No, but you, but um, and then we should really get back to the epigraphs. But um, the prose is very different. It's a very different style of book in a lot of ways. If so. it isn't, if it isn't as if it doesn't require me to read as closely as Erickson does, I'll I can knock him out. Okay, Peter's nodding. Okay, so yeah, I can knock that. Well, out. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know. We're gonna have to. I'm gonna have to talk. I, I'm gonna have plenty of time to talk about Elsamont, but I I agree. I think those books are a little more approachable and. You know, I think they're pretty. Yeah, I think they're fun. I love those books. So cool. Anyway, I guess back to uh, Dead House Gates epigraphs, ostensibly what this is, what we're discussing today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, this is where it slows down for me in terms of what I wrote for notes. Uh, towards the end, a lot of the stuff just kind of was there. It really felt like to me. Death shall be uh, my bridge. Toblakai saying. Yeah, that's I loved that. I will say, um, great phrase, and obviously a, a plug to uh, the Toblakai. Uh, who again? I, like. I couldn't keep the two of them straight in my read through. I could not remember who was Tobakai and who was Leoman mm. the whole time, basically. Uh, and so this didn't mean anything to me. I didn't understand it at all. But now I'm like really into it. I think what's interesting about quick reread note now that I can talk to you more about it. You know, at the end of Dead House, like in my mind, Felison's story ends when she ascends to Shaikh, you know, like and she's like, oh, I'm Shaikh now, you know. Oh, yeah, she's she, in House of Chains. It is hard for me to call her Felison because with the exception of when she is in the tent with Haboric, oh, she's yeah. Shaikh. Definitely. Blown. But my point is, you know, at the end of book three, I think she um, arrives and, you know, she meets Toblakai and Leoman with a yeah, yeah, yeah. With the book of Drajna. And um, often I think about that point as the end of her story, but she has a whole part of that story. And at the end of Dead House Gates, she meets Laoric Bidathal, and, you know, she meets yes, these other, yes. She meets the almost the whole cast of House of Chains vis a vis Apocalypse. And I, I don't know. I just, I always forget it because I feel like that is just when I think about the ending of Dead House Gates. I don't think about the thirty new characters I met and didn't didn't mean anything. Well, yeah, you know it's, what I mean? be- it's because because they're there because they have to be in order for you to like accept that book four is happening. You know, so yeah, yeah. It, but but yeah, it doesn't. They, there's no impact on book three really with that. And linking to that, at the start of book three, you have a a, a note from Bidathal. Yes, when she, the sands dance blind, she emerged from the face of a raging goddess, Shaikh by Bidathal. And yeah, that's uh, pretty good. No, I think it's you know it's a, it's a strong mood setting poem as usually the 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 book poems are. Mm-hmm. And um, you know it's it, it's interesting s- to I, see him there. No, hey, I will say a, a continuing critique of mine. When when. When do they have time to put down these poems and uh, ostensibly publish them? Because something tells me that after his death in the fourth book, there really didn't seem much time for anyone to go through his belongings and find his, you know, Biddy's special poetry book and save it from the flood. <laughs> so like, that's, that's always my thought when I read these is like, how do we get to know he said this? Yeah. And where are, uh, well, I mean, the thing is, maybe it was, 
collected from before it. Do you mean? Because obviously Bitithal would have been there for a while. But yes, the only thing is at most, I mean, how long was this rebellion going with old Shaikh before Felicin becomes new Shaikh reborn or whatever? Right, right, do you right. mean? So mm-hmm. that's one of those things that I don't know. Doesn't matter to me. We'll, sounds, we'll never, yeah, we'll never know. We'll never sounds know. good. Sounds good, Steve. You know. To start at chapter 11, you have, If you seek the crumbled bones of the Talani mass, gather into one hand the sands of Reriku. I, like, what a bold play. Because that doesn't pay off until you reread the book. Like, yeah. this whole, because that that doesn't get talked about. There are There's no Talani mass in this book, as far as I can remember. We don't see Tool, and he's the only one we've met so far with by name. So, like, you, we get told that, and it's like, why do I give a shit until the end of book four when it's like, Oh, fuck, Shaikh was a Talani Mass. Oh, they came through. Oh, there's so... Oh, the whole continent has so much Talani Mass shit. And My some, goodness. And there's some more Talani Mass shit there that I feel like, although you've read a briefly about it, I don't think you've actually... In, we haven't talked about it that much. And yeah, it, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Sure. And I think just when I think about it, it's further underlining this history as land and setting... Uh, idea and, and here's chapter 12's opening ages unveiled the holy desert Rayraku was once an ochre sea ochre shout out she stood in the wind great word, great word. on the pride of a spire and saw ancient fleets ships of bones sails of bleached hair charging the cre- crest to where the water slipped beneath the sands of the deserts to come and it's yeah. just, you know, it's it's highlighting that sea again. And I know you were really joking a lot about how many times do I need to hear that Rorik was a sea once. Yeah. But I don't know. It just plays well, into now that Now I know theme, it was you know. pretty important. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I like it. Uh, book four, jumping in, starts off with a bone hunter's marching song about the bridge burners. I believe you read burners. this poem on the podcast, Josh. Probably. But I didn't know who the fuck the bone hunters were. And at the time, go. no, sorry, but it was at the it was at the chain of dogs, and that's that's he's setting this up four books in advance because we have to get through Midnight Tides, House of Chains has to happen, and at the end, you like I only know that they're bone hunters because you told me they're the bone hunters. You know what I mean? For they the record, I think been, I think Steve told you they're the bone. Hunters. Yeah, Steve told us in the interview that they're the bone hunters, and so now we got fucking Midnight Tides. It's not until whatever the next book is. I think it's actually called the Bone Hunters, right? Yes, book six is yeah. Yeah, it's that, that's four books early he is setting that up, which is absolutely brilliant. And setting that connection of their following in Coltane's footsteps. Dude, there's some called shots so late in the, like, late in the series, there's some payoffs to things he set up so long ago that are, like, mind-shatteringly aggravating. Do you know what I mean? That's, I can't wait. I cannot wait. Just aggravating that, like, I feel, like, how, Steve, how dare you be playing me for this long? Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, uh, chapter 15, I really like, uh, I love the line, a god walking mortal earth trails blood, you know? Yeah, is this about Fenner, do you think? I don't know, what do you think, bro? It, it. I thought it was hinting at Fenner, because we haven't really talked about any other gods falling in any way. I mean, we now know at the end of book four, through some discussions on the podcast, that pretty much every god has a mortal form, mm. or at least a physical form, I should say. Versus now Fenner is wholly an immortal one. So I was wondering if that was a hint at him. By Fenner's hoof. Okay. I think I'm just going <laughs> to start cursing like that from now on, you know? I love it. I'll start throwing in some Star Wars ones. Carf. Yeah. Um, or is it Criff? What is it? I think it's Carf. Literally, I believe we had this identical conversation on the show once. Probably, probably did. And then I, br- I brought up, uh, you know, anyway, anyway, Battlestar Galactus, what does it say? Oh, yeah, Have you yeah. ever seen Battlestar Galactica, Josh? So 
the, the only experience I have of Battlestar Galactica is I had a friend growing up through middle and high school who... Was their name I, Peter? Was, was their name Peter? No, <laughs> his name was Lucas, saying he was my brother, which was always weird. And it was either his sister or someone in the family was just always watching. I felt like every time I was over, Battlestar Galacta was on. And I was always like, what is this wild sci-fi show? Because the rest of like the rest of the time I see you, you're very boring. But for whatever reason, you are hot on this show. And that's my only experience. I like, and I came in during like a really intense episode where they were, because that's the show where people can be the, the, the thingies and they can like basically pretend to be somebody. What are they called? You know what they're called? I can't think right now. Whatever it is, someone in the comments tell us. Uh, and it was in one of the episodes where they're trying to decide if one of the people is that. And I think they like killed someone and they ended up not being a clone. And I was just like, well, this is heavy. I'm going to go play games again. Josh, in my experience, most Battlestar Galactica fans are hot. And that is just a fact. Um, and to answer your actual question, they're not clones. They're called Cylons, Josh. And That's what they're called. I wanted to say Cypons, and I knew that wasn't right. It's like, it's like you haven't even watched the show. You know? I literally haven't. I've seen parts of some episodes, and they were very heavy, and I was like 13. That's like a perfect age to love Battlestar Galactica. Anyway, back to this very focused podcast we're doing. It's tough, though. I was just too busy lifting weights and kissing girls. You know, yeah. Peter, I didn't really have time for Battlestar Galactica. So in the start of chapter 21, you have uh, a quote from Kellen Ved. Every throne is an arrow butt. <laughs> I just wrote yes. That's all I wrote about it. Yes. I liked it so much. And what especially I kind of like about it is it, since we're reading Midnight Tides now, I don't know how if you I, I'm... You know, we're, we're there's all this empty throne shit. There's is a lot of get there's, I don't, there's I don't, a lot I don't, of don't understand it at all. There's a lot of throne energy going on in Midnight Tide, so I was just shouting this one out. You know? Yeah, I don't know anything about it yet. It's still above me. I'm only in chapter. I think I'm only on. I think I read chapter three yesterday, so I got to read chapter four today. And then in chapter twenty four, we have another dreams of rising seas. We have some more sea imagery and are playing with it. And the final mm -hmm. one I wanted to mention, I don't know if you had any other uh, ones you wanted to plug, JB. Not particularly. Is there an epigraph in this one or an epilogue in this one? There is an epilogue. There in is. He I missed it. I was. I didn't see it yesterday. Well, let me read it to you about? because I really like it. Hood sprites are revealed. The disordered host. Whisperings of deaths and wing flap chorus. Dower music has its own beauty for the song of ruin is most fertile. Mm. And I kind of mm. like that one because it's, I think Steve's kind of being like, yo, this is a, this was a sad song, boys. I, you know, like, I don't know that, but it's, it's, good. it's most fertile, you know, there's a lot to, a lot of, a lot to harvest from this here sad song. Yeah. Well, it's a Wiccan dirge. So it literally is a sad song. Yeah. So, you know, I like when, it's it's kind of addressing the audience directly. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, in some ways the epigraphs in this one are a little more, you know, as you said, anecdotal. But I think the ones that hit in this one, they really hit. Yeah, I actually think some of them hit a little less for me. And I think that's because, as I mentioned, I kind of prefer some of the more cryptic poems. And there's just a, a little less of these. There was yeah, the, Most yeah. of the poems are shorter, too, this time. Mm -hmm. There's very few, like, half-pagers. Yeah, so uh, it's very interesting. And I'm really looking forward to it now that I think we've established we're doing this. Ep we're riding all the way yeah, with these yeah, epigraphs, yeah. baby. I'm, like, oh. I'm like, looking forward to... 
I don't know, having these little, you know, ladies lunches and talking about uh, what's going on with these epigraphs, you know? Do you know what I'm looking forward to is starting in book three, chapters always start on their own page. And that's going to be a game changer for trying to go back and find these fucking epigraphs. Yeah, because I think in the mat, those, in those editions you have, sometimes they start books, on the back Books page. one and two, for some reason, books one and two, wherever the chapter ends, the next one begins. There is there is no rhyme or reason to it. So that's going to conclude this edition of Exploring Epigraphs. Uh, if you have any thoughts about these epigraphs or... Uh... And I would actually honestly really like to hear people's thoughts. Honestly, some of the discussion around the reading order people use, it can be quite, I don't know, lots of people have lots of opinions. And I, although I do think generally the advice of just read the main 10 straight through is, prob is, is the best advice. But, you know, I don't know. We'll talk about what to do with Josh. We'll talk to AJ. We'll talk to Josh and let us know what you think. And uh, I don't know, tweet at us. Uh, email us, you know, talk, you know, you know how to get in contact with us. And of course, thank you for supporting our show um, and helping uh, helping us to make more investing. It really means a lot to us. So and now place moving on from place. Oh, well, moving on from epigraphs, we're going to move on to talking about a movie which features some epitaphs, some very important ones to the story of it. And that is, of course, Hubie Halloween, the new hit from Adam Sandler. I, I thought you were going to say included some epic laughs, which I thought... Oh, that would have been good, too. No. Oh, that would have been really good. Um, unfortunately, they didn't contain any of... No, they did. I, I laughed out loud from my tummy a couple times. I laughed several times, and that's no shame. Um... Alright, put on the music, AJ, and spin us in. Hello, everybody. Producer AJ here, just popping in quickly in the middle of this episode to let you know that you actually won't be hearing Pete and Josh discuss Hubie Halloween, unfortunately. Uh, this episode is a combination of two of our Patreon bonuses, so if you'd like to hear the full versions of these episodes, you can head on over to our Patreon and become a patron. And just to be clear, this episode right here does contain all the epigraph content, but none of the epic laugh content. Uh, so you're getting all the Malazan conversation in this episode, just not the hour or so. Uh, about mediocre movies. Uh, thank you to everybody who contributed to the show. As always, you can find their links in the show notes. Uh, but for now, we're going to move on to the Memories of Ice epigraphs. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name is Peter Bond, and with me... He just said he was looking into buying a pizza stone. It's Joshua Dean Baker. You know, I really think uh, I, the, there's this a nice thing called like Friday pizza night that I see a lot of people doing. And uh, my girlfriend and I decided we wanted to give it a whirl. So uh, I really got to get that those materials prepped. Don't most people just like get takeout or something? No, you know? no, no. We're really trying to limit ourselves. This is not a joke to maybe getting takeout like one time a week. So that's pretty reasonable. I feel like that's good to, you know, put a cap yeah, on something so like that. So I got some nice dough from a place, got all the ingredients. Now looking for a pizza stone I can get shipped here real quick. But but the thing is, couldn't you do takeout once a week and then just do it on pizza night or not? Well, you know? so jo I cook every meal because uh, okay. HR is really bad at cooking. So I cook every single meal. And so like. 
I need at least one night a week that Josh don't got to think about mm. nothing. And like in terms of cooking. And so pizza is so easy to cook that I, I can include that in my like week of cooking. Because like that's just roll out dough, sauce that bad boy up, top it, put it in. Sauce easy, that bad done. boy up. All right. 25 and- minutes. As you could well and tell, this is a Malazan podcast, and we're here today to talk about the epigraphs of Memories of Ice in uh, me and Josh's recurring Exploring Epigraphs miniseries. Um, and la- last time, we stayed after the credits and talked the Netflix's November release, uh, October release, Hubie Halloween, starring Adam Sandler. So if you want to hang around after the credits this time... Uh, Josh, why don't you tell them what we're doing? Well, we're going to, we're going to really dive deep into one of my favorite franchises in all of TV and film history, which is the collected works of, of one Scoober to do. Uh, and so we're going to be talking about the James Gunn directed film, produced film, uh, Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed. Yes, in fact, that is what Josh thinks we will be doing. That's right, everybody. I've been lying to Josh for several months now about what our after credits segment will be. So if you want to figure out what type of lie I've been weaving to Josh, you should stay after the credits. I don't know if this is a bit or not now. Full on, not a bit, baby. That's right. I watched Scooby-Doo 2. I wasted <laughs> minutes of my life re-watching Scooby-Doo 2 There's gonna be for a d- nothing? That's gonna st- Buckle your seatbelts, baby. This podcast has twists and turns. Now let's kick it off at, into the memories <laughs> of Ice Segment. <laughs> It's good, buddy. Don't worry about it. You're going to like the way you look. Okay. All right. All right. So uh, yesterday I sat down and I I read through these Memories of Ice epigraphs. And um, I'm just going to jump out the gate and tell you my thoughts, you know? Uh Uh-huh. I remember when we talked about Deadhouse Gates, I was like super hot on them. I was a little cold. I don't know if I felt as stoked on the, these this handful of epigraphs. What do you think? I'm right there with you. I, I read them today, actually, and my my thoughts were my thought was this one. I feel like on a reread, I got so much information wise out of these epigraphs. I felt very much like very- oh, I see what Steve I see what Steve was doing. But the cost of that is there are very few pure, just like stone cold Steve writing poetry moments. Dead ass, dead ass. uh, There's very few poetic ones. Yeah, it's very, very different from the previous two. Which which I almost found surprising because, and one thing, and then we should get back into it. It really made me, and I feel like we should just like really shoot to do it. I think we can get through House of Chains and Memories of Ice so that when we're reading Bone Hunters, we can plan to, during that season, at the end of that season, exactly release the epigraphs. Because once again, just reading these without reading the chapter afterwards does make me feel a little, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's, um... It's interesting. I don't know. I really, and I, I can, if I can go one step deeper with my thoughts on the epigraphs. Hit it, baby. I really, I really feel like the epigraphs, they, it makes sense that Memories of Ice has the epigraphs that it does, because in my opinion, I know I'm only five deep into the series, but I feel like Memories of Ice is the most Steve writes a fantasy book of the five so far. 
And I feel like, you know, like he follows the rules of fantasy books so much in Memories of Ice and makes a phenomenal fucking book in the process. And I feel like the epigraphs really kind of mirror that. Like, you know, it's much more like the tactics, you know, the the infrastructure of the Empire, you know, uh, some slight exposition here and there. And I really feel like it was much more like in the lanes as compared to the previous two books. And this book is the same way in many ways, in my opinion. No, I definitely agree with your take. And it's something that stood out to me when I reread Memories of Ice, especially since in my mind, I don't know, House of Chains is a pretty weird book. But Mm -hmm. like, we're still like kind of getting into now some of the weirder ends of what Steve wrote. Do you mean? So yeah, I definitely agree with your take. And uh, and yeah, to keep going with your point, you know, not only is it about tactics, I also found so many of them because I don't want to make it sound like this is a total anomaly. I mean, one and two definitely had their like expositional heavy epigraphs, you know, like mm-hmm. here's just mm-hmm. a bunch of info. We threw it at the front of the chapter. Do you know what I mean? Um, and, you know, and that's not bad. You know, it's in fact, sometimes I think it's pretty good, you know? Yeah. But this time, a lot of it was pretty long. There were several more. I mean, there was probably, I don't know, almost half of them felt like they were big chunks of Expo. And a lot of them were about Dujek's host and like different Mm -hmm. factions comprising them and histories of that. Um, And then one of them just, uh, I think several of them refer to the Pananian Wars. um, Yes. And are like, you know, mentioning that, which almost reminded me that me, you know, but I don't know if I really took that away at the time as a big impact. I don't know. I first read Memories of Ice so long ago. I read it on a beach weekend the first time. I'd like brought it down. so so funny. I was reading it on the beach with while some friends of mine were like, you know, I don't know, drinking Bud Light Limes. It was kind of a funny juxtaposition in retrospect, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. I fuck up a Bud Light Lime right now. Those things are way better than you'd think they'd be. I only associated with that weird beach weekend where I was crushing Memories of Ice. <laughs> 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 anyway. Um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's pick some out. What's, uh, what's an epigraph that stood out to you, J-Bone? Well, I... Like very speaking of what you're talking about with with one arms host and stuff, I do want to point out that the opening of book one, that really was the moment for me that I was like, this is, you know, the very first one I read, I was like, this is so, so different from Gardens and Deadhouse Gates. Both of them start off with really great evocative sort of ethereal, oh, I'm going to tell you the story in advance, but you don't know yet kind of feeling stuff. This one straight up is like, Hey, in case you forgot how book one ended, here you go. Which personally kind of was nice for me, kind of getting this. And I do remember when reading Memories of Ice, I remember feeling like, oh, this is really helpful for me. I, I now remember that like end of book one, you know, we, we were setting up the scene of Dujek's army rebelling. However, on the reread, it definitely feels to me much more like hinting at, like there's a paragraph after this that exists in in fiction that goes, but as we all know, this was all a lie, and, you know, he was working for the Empire the whole time. And, like, reading it now, I can feel that unwritten paragraph right afterwards. Like, a lot of the way that it's phrased, I'm now like, oh, he, they really were hinting that this was not a real rebelling by Dujek, and I did not at all pick that up my first time through. So it's very interesting you mentioned that first one, 
and because you know the, like the 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 epigraph for book one it, like it, you know it definitely gives the sum up which i which i agree is kind of nice and it's interesting that you mentioned it's that like steve's doing some of the work for the reader which is not always something yes. steve's doing but then no. it ends with the the like uh, oh and it all happened with this blown out bridge <laughs> yes. you know because it's like getting us to the caravan yeah the caravan and Gruntle and Stoney and, you know. Which is interesting you picked that out because I didn't even think about how, like, that's just a, we just have a narrator here, basically. We're, we're full on Princess Briding it. But so, like, exactly right. That's what I was going to touch on, Josh. I actually feel like, do 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 it's a little postmodern. And, yeah. And it's, <laughs> God damn it. In, in that it's like a, you know, he is kind of, this is, and it's fun. We'll get to the book eventually. Anyway, we're like, uh, we're kind of narrating the story in the most narrating way, especially since that yes. type of, that type of device when you're like, man, my whole life changed Tuesday morning because of a flat tire. You know, it's like yeah. that type of thing. It's like a <laughs> shtick in a way, you know, but it reminds me of uh, in, in chapter 20, you know, it, it, there's kind of a love sonnet esque thing, but it ends with addressing. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Which, which you know, the love sonnet did nothing for me, but it ends with addressing gentle readers. You know, which I think is yet another time in which this book is addressing us directly um, in a way that, you know, I don't know, stuck out to me. So it rang that bell when you mentioned it again at how much this catch-up is such a narration. Although it's interesting, of course, though, because the epigraphs are kind of extracts from other in-world texts. So, of course, there can be an element of mm -hmm. their narration being a little different than the book we're reading. Yeah. I do want to point out chapter 20. I know you said it didn't much for you, but I really enjoyed that. Oh, I mean, that's that, great. It, on the reread, because uh, for those who don't have the book right in front of them, it's a poem about the dog gods from this book that eventually are reunited. And I just really like uh, the last line, uh, but who then could have imagined such closure? And I was like, that's nice. This, And it made me think that like, as hard as Malazan is, like the world of, of the Malazan books, there are some really touching storylines that do get finished every now and again that are really nice. And I do find it funny because like in most books, that would be such a huge pivotal thing. In the, but like this is it's just kind of one of 80 storylines in this book. And it just so happens that one of them ends nicely. No, that, it, I actually I actually really feel like book book three has the most happy things at the end. Shockingly. No, I think book three. I mean, it's going to be funny to say, but pretty much has a full on happy ending. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I know we lose some people along the way, but basically everything, you know, I don't know. That's, you know, may, I, maybe I'm being a bit reductionist, mm -hmm. but they win, they win a battle. So I guess my, you know, and now I, think, yeah. I actually kind of revised my statement. But anyway, back to this. I, I want to, can I throw to chapter three? Chapter just three. Because, just because of, uh, so I've mentioned before that I do, I, re, I, I think I'm pretty okay at catching uh epigraphs when it's going to relate directly to the book in some way never knowing exactly what it is but being like that's going to mean something and i remember reading this one and seeing confessions of artanthos mm. and then being like oh that's a character we're going to see and it says a standard bearer and that's when i was like mm, i don't know steve uh -huh. don't usually just write a standard bearer to describe somebody and then that person also gets to have the so that was interesting also what was that dude's name i can't was that is that tavor that's Tavor? No, Tavor. No, Tavor. Sorry, 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 sorry. I know it's a T name because in book one it's Tattersail and then the high, the high mage is... Taishran. 
Tayshrin. I knew it was a T name. That's who it was. I was actually, it's so funny. I finally got to vent. I don't know if I actually made it on air. I was, you know, we're doing that mini series with this car. Um, I am about uh, the, the Esselmont books. And I just have always not liked Tayshrin. And I finally got to like vent about it with him. It was so fucking, you know. Satisfying? It was very satisfying, you know. It's just been sitting on these feelings forever, you know. I really, it's going to be hard to ever like him considering that like he was in the only position to save Whiskey Jack and like just isn't, doesn't, it doesn't have, I don't know. I, I need to reread that knowing how it all breaks down really yeah. at some point. Since we're at the front of the book, I w- wanted to plug my uh, chapter one. I actually think, and I actually think I read this quote on the podcast because I think the chapter one epigraph rules. It's Memories are woven tapestries hiding hard walls. Tell me, my friends, what hue your favorite thread, and I, in turn, will tell the cast of your soul. I don't know, man. Just see, it's, it's one of the nice. it's one of the few that's just like Steve doing poetry, and it's just about I don't know. It's just like a cryptic thing about trying to figure out who you are, you know, and mm-hmm. kind of just jives with me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I really like the hiding hard walls bit. That's that's good. Steve Steve does... I would read a whole book of Steve poetry I, if you ever wanted to throw that out there. The thing is, I feel like Steve's writing as it is is already... I wouldn't use the phrase poetic, but it's, like, very dense. So, like, a lot of the times the dense... Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like sometimes yeah, if you, you really just you. sat down and read some some Steve paragraphs, not all, you would really just have that. It's like that media of a time in some ways, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can I tell you one I wrote in all caps in my notes I roll at? Oh, yeah, I'm ready. Chapter eight. It's a quote by Dancer. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. I know exactly the one. The harder the world, the fiercer the honor. You know, just gets a big eye roll from PB, you know, like, I, yeah. Just hyping yourself up there, boy. Like, I'm so fucking hard. I'm so fucking fierce. Yeah, Dancer doesn't get this yet because we haven't met him. And even when we do meet him, he doesn't get this because he's kind of a little emo bitch most of book four. (laughs) Okay, but uh, it's just, I don't know. I just feel like it's like too, I don't know. It's a little, it's a little much for PB. It's a little much. I'll say that, you know? Okay, okay. All right, what's one that stood out to you, J-Bum? Let me look through, let me look through. Um, well, actually, I don't know if this stands out, but it made me realize that I, I might need a quick memory jog, and I think that would be great if you could help me with that. Mm. So chapter five, mm. I, I mean, it's got to be about Tool, um, talks about the first sword. It's entitled Lay of the First Sword. It has memories uh, of ice name drop in it, right? It does does drop memories of ice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I was struggling because it's like he rises bloodless from dust, dead eyes, blah, blah, blah. Okay, he's dead. And then we're at the part, he's the lodestone to the gathering clan made anew and dream racked. And then I was like, oh, is this poem about the end of the book, you know, where he's kind of who they gather around as a people when the, the destriant takes, not the destriant, the, uh, the anvil takes all of their everything, you know, and they kind of get that, that extra, that new life. Is that, do, are they racked by dreams after that? I can't remember. Cause it made me also, I was also then thinking about the, the Narek people who, who end up dreaming in, uh. Midnight Tides. I don't know. My, my, my thoughts were very conflated and it made me realize that I don't have a strong image in my mind of what happens to the Tisty people at the end of uh, this book. I forget. The Not t- the Tisty, sorry. The uh, Talani Mass. 
Okay, well, the Talani Mass, in this end of this book, a lot of their uh, suffering, or, meh, suffering is the wrong word. Uh, Ipkovian releases them from their... Right, yep. right. And then a lot of the, the these kind of restored, in a way, right? Some, uh, those those memories, kind of, some of them are in that pocket dimension with uh, right. yeah, yeah. the Mibe. The Mibe. And then many set out on this quest with Silver Fox, to go to find those lost Talani masks on a sail. Oh, right, 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 right. And then um, Tool goes with his sister, doesn't he? And yes, they're in, Tool and Kalava roll out. And Tool looks human. Yes, he's become human Human Tool. Well, he, right, right, right. he's become Imas Tool, right? Okay, got you, got you. Right before the ritual of Talon, right, 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 right. And then maybe I was conflating it with Tok, because Tok's kind of with some people, right? Because he's an, an Aster's body. Maybe I was kind of conflating their two things at the end, because Tool is kind of off in his own. Okay, yes, because right. the that final scene me. is with Tok and Tool. And Tok doesn't re- recognize Tool, but Tok knows who, but Tool knows who Tok is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. The, uh, that, yeah. Okay, I feel better. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. That helped. Okay, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to highlight uh, chapter nine. Most of the ones I liked during the first half. Yeah, I was going to talk about this one too. If you didn't. Yeah, I don't know. The le- the back half did really little nothing for me. You know, and here's oh my we- god, book book three. You can look at my notes. I wrote like two words after each of those. For <laughs> book book three. Yeah. Book three I actually kind of like. Book four is where it lost me. One thing I will say this about book four. They kept talking about betrayal a lot. A lot of them are yes, about yes, betrayal. Yes, 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 you know? Look at my last note. I really wrote betrayal is such a big part of this book. It's crazy. Yeah. Is that how you feel, JB? Um, in the epigraphs, it feels like it. And I don't know if I can't... I don't know if I would say betrayal as a whole is a big theme in this book. I would feel like that probably is more true of some later books so far. I don't know. But they really talk about it a lot at the end of this one. And there's a whole epigraph about it. That's what I felt was so false. Like, who is the betraying? Who does the yeah, betraying the only, in this book? The you only know? one who betrays in this book is Calum. Like, and literally... That's obviously who's it about, right? But in, right, I yeah. guess in my mind... I like is Kalor really betraying them here? Because like maybe this is just our point of view. I feel like you're kind of have to be a fool to be like Kalor was like in the tank with the squad from the beginning. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I said that the whole time that it was gonna end badly with Kalor. Yeah, like, like clearly. I just feel like it's like kind of obviously he was never on the team. So I don't really feel yeah. like there's any like team members or people who are a part of the th- a thing that betray the thing. I know there's the uh, who's who's the priest in Capistan who betrays like them or is like kind of a shitbag? Someone so unimportant I could yeah, never it's remember like their the, name. It, that's what I mean, right but not to the biggest point. So it's obviously about Calor since it's in book yes. four, and I just don't feel like I would call him a betra- it a betrayal. I know it is technically because he was allied with them. He was right, right, traveling like, with them. It's not like it's not like what we see from Troll and. Fear and of Midnight Tides, where they walk away from their brother, specifically Fear. I feel like that book has so many more themes, even though even if it isn't everywhere, there are themes of betrayal throughout that book that I feel like make more sense than this one. You're right. There's only one act. Now, granted, it was a heart-wrenching act and killed me inside, but, you know, it's only one. But here's the thing, though. I mean, when you talk about betrayal... Now that I really think about it, it is such a dramatic word, you know, and especially it is, it is. especially in novels when people betray each like 
Josh, if you use the word I was betrayed by somebody, I was like, what? I would be like, what the fuck are you talking about, Josh? Do you know what I mean? It's like a bit. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're kind of getting a sidetrack. Let's 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 stay on these epigraphs. But um, yeah, 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 yeah. Just uh, just I don't know. Let's call her there. You know, really, really, JB, really. Mm-hmm. Anyway, here's mm-hmm. chapter nine. <clears throat> on the subcontinent of Stratum, beyond Corali's southern range, can be found a vast peninsula where even the gods do not tread. Reaching to each coast, encompassing an area of thousands of square leagues, stretches a vast plaza. I, dear readers, there is no other word for it. Fashion this in your mind. Near seamless flagstones, unmarred by age of and of gray. Almost black stone. Rippled lines of dark dust. Minuscule dunes heaped by the moaning winds. These are all that break the breathless monotony. Who laid such stones? Should we give credence to Gothos's hoary tome, his glorious folly? Should we attach a dread name to the makers of this plaza? If we must, then that name is the Kachain Shamal. Who then were the Kachain Shamal? An elder race, or so Gothos tells, extinct even before the rises of the Jagut, the Talani Mass, the Forkral Assail. Truth? Ah, if so, then these stones were laid down half a million, perhaps more, years ago. In the opinion of this chronicler, what utter nonsense. My endless travels, Esli Monat, the dubious. Really good. And I love, once again, addressing the reader. And also, I just love that it's the fucking dubious, bro. Fucking amazing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. My whole thing when reading this was all I could think was, just when I think I've got a grip on things. Then I got to read some shit like this that makes me rethink everything I understand about the elder races. And and I because if I say if you were like, yeah, can you sit down and really explain to me like some of their generalized history? That's what I'm like. Nah, like I at this point, I think I know what they look like. And I thought that was enough. But then I read this one and I was like, fuck, I just uh, there's too much. There's too much about them still that I don't know that I'm excited to eventually assumedly know. Yeah, man, I just uh... and also reading Gothis's folly. Have we seen or been there? Because that really fucking rang a bell this time through. I was like, that sounds familiar. So little fun, little parting, uh, little, little talk about the production. Before we started the show, we I, I pitched that we called the show Our Folly for a while. You know, in that like it would be like Our Folly to be reading these books. This name sounds somewhat like Gothos's Folly. Glad we didn't go with it. Worst name, and also a really deep cut to the Gothos's Folly thing. Not super deep, yeah. but um, have we been there? Have we seen it besides this epigraph? No, it's a recurring thing in epigraphs. I, I, I'm sure it's been mentioned elsewhere. Okay, so uh, it's a bit of a deep cut then. Okay. I don't know if it's a bit of a deep cut. I feel like if you ask most Malazan readers, they know what Gothos's Folly is. Um, All right, write in if you know what Goth- Gothos's Folly is. He, th- They definitely know. They definitely know. Um, so we do go there. It's it's not a place. It's a tome. Oh, okay. So I was confused. Additionally, I was looking through old names we suggested for the show before we started it. And I got to tell you, I stand by Talon Podcast as the best name <laughs> for the show. You know? That is pretty good. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. But before, you didn't know what the Talani Mass were. And plus, the no, thing, if you don't know what the sh- the books are, it's a, it's not a good name for the show, you know? No. Plus, like, if you were trying to get someone to spell it, everyone would be like, there's an apostrophe where. Exactly. Or you wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. And then you'd be like, it's like the Talani Mass, like the ritual of Talon. And then, like, yeah. you know. It was definitely the right call to be 10 very big books, just four one-syllable words. Yeah. 
monosyllabic words. Monosyllabic. Monosyllabic. Um, <laughs> all right, kick it, baby. Ch- pick one for me. Oh, okay. I wanted to go with number 10. Mm. Staying very... Uh, about the tisty. About the tisty, right. And I, I read it and I was like, I feel like this must be one of our very first times being exposed to just the, the fucking shenanigans that are these three ancient races. Mm. And can I say, I for a bunch of ancient people... Mm. They are a, just a gaggle of fuck-ups through and through. <laughs> okay. I just feel like with with the exception of Anamander Rake and Corlat, who are two tier, tier, top tier people in terms of constantly on it and has their shit together. With the exception of them, the Atisti Elosian are what's-his-face the mage who gets himself uh, almost dead at the end of... House of Chains. Loric. His his dad Loric. His dad Osric, a king of being a bad dad, the king of de- bad dads. The two of them, and then the 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 fucking the crew, the, Ledberg, the, the dude crew. Drawed. Yeah, yeah, fucking Don Quixote and Sancho Panza riding around getting their asses kicked by Carcer or whatever it was. I forget those idiots. So uh, the Distillusion. They just showed up again in Return of the Crimson Guard. I forgot they do, and they just re- remain some of the best. I just such a good shtick. You know, I have my They're problems very with House of funny. Chains. Yeah, those fucking so fucking funny, so fucking yeah. good. They're funny. The Tisty Lotion, very funny. The Tisty Andy, ma- ma- mostly competent, although the brother of Anamander Rake is a bit is a bit too Dark Lord for me. Edge Lord, I guess. And then the Tisty Eater are a collection of idiots. So just through and through, in my opinion, after reading this this book, House of whatever, Midnight Tides. I think it's interesting at this point, I think you probably know the Eater the best, right? Out of the three. It, we do, we do. Which is so funny because um, I remember reading... Uh, House of Chains and only knowing Troll Sengar and being like, God, these are these guys are weird. Why, why are they like the Andy? And now I'm like, I don't even remember the Andy like, at all. I've, I've, never heard of yeah, them. I've met I've met three of them by name and I now know multiple tribes of Eater. Mm. You know, it's it's very strange. Uh, but my question was, and this might be a dumb one, but like there are very many family names attributed to important people amongst the Tisti. Hmm. And I'm just tra- I'm just checking. Mother Dark birthed all three, but there aren't fathers, right? We have Father Shadow and we have Father Light, I believe. I don't know if there's a Father Darkness or not. There's Mother Darkness. But they're not actually like they're also Tisti, right? Or am I wrong? Are there fathers to these races in addition to Mother Dark? Well, I don't know if it should really. Okay, first off, the the real the real answer is I don't know. Now, next, okay, moving on to the my answer, you know, because I don't want to take anything I say super serious. But my understanding is that you shouldn't think of it that way. I think. Do you know what I mean? Like as like a mom, dad, let's make a kid. Do you know what I mean? I feel like right. that's so speaking in a more poetic way. Although, like, I do think there is, like, a literal element. Like, these people are, like, creations of them. Do you know what I mean? Right, right. But the only, like, Mother Dark 100% made the uh, Andy, you know, and Mother Dark and Father Light together made the Eater 100%. The the only thing is, the Legion may just come from Father Light. I'm not 100% on where they come from. Well, I thought in Chapter 10 it mentioned them all coming from Mother Dark. And Father Light is Osric, right? Who we met? Yes, that's Osric, yeah. 
No, they're you're they you're right. They're the second of Mother Dark's children. You're you're dead. Yeah. You're dead on. I was I was kind of just being led astray. No, uh, that's definitely what it is. But I agree. I, I I'm gonna stand by that. I don't know if you should think about it in such a physical way. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. I just wanted to double check. Although I take it all back. You should think about it a physical in a physical way. Did you just look it up? I'm 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 reading some stuff, but the thing is. Well, in my mind, I was like, "Well, Father Light." Apparently, it's described. A, apparently, it's described in a little more detail in Forge of Darkness, which I haven't read. Oh, okay, that's the first Carcanus book. I'll give you a pass. All right, let's keep it moving since now we're into the weeds of the test. Yeah, here's a uh, here's one I really liked. It's from Chapter Fifteen. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In my dreams, I come face to face with myriad reflections of myself, all unknown and passing strange. They speak unending in languages not my own and walk with companions I have never met. In places, my steps have never gone. In my dreams, I walk worlds where forests crowd my knees and half the sky is walled ice. Dun herds flow like mud. Vast floods, tusked and horned, surging over the plain, and lo, they are my memories, the migrations of my soul, in the time before night, derivands of the rivy. Really good. Really top tier. That's that trippy Steve shit that we have been missing this book. Yeah, man. And not only is it getting into some like pastoral imagery in the second half, but I just love that first half about like reflections of yourself and kind of not knowing yourself or who you are and obviously this poem most speaks to me about the mime and her yeah, um, yeah, yeah. struggles in the book yeah Sonic just, Fox too though probably yeah that's true that's true it probably is probably in to tie both of them since there's kind of rhymes between both their stories oh, now if you say it i think if anything more silver fox she's the one who's so mired in that like mm-hmm. identity crisis kind of manifested yeah. so f- literally um yeah, so I don't know. That one really resonates with me, still does what I just read it. You know, I don't know if I can even add to it. It's I just think great. it's so strong it's on its own. Uh, I want to jump towards the very last chapter real quick. I wanted to circle back to... Actually, you know what? Before I do that, hey, I got to talk about 23. Okay. 23, 23 is about the heroic Maranth. The Maranth. Name I can't remember. Right. Twist. And twist. And that I really loved it. But the, here's my problem is while reading it, there was a part of me that was like, is Steve just telling me I'm never going to learn more about the Maranth? Because I will be upset. Oh, Peter's <laughs> mouthing yes. Because I read it, and I was like, you're saying all of these if I understood the Maranth and how they thought in a way that I ne- that it sounds like I never am going to. Yeah, so he's talking to us. That's cool. It's funny because, like, the Maranth in book one are so confusing. And then book three, they're still confusing. But by the end of book three, you kind of have this relationship with them in that they've been throughout the book and doing important stuff. But now we're two books away from Genabacus. And I'm realizing that, like, they aren't and they are from from Genabacus. They aren't from anywhere else. And I really didn't fully grasp that fact i think when reading book three because at that point we'd only seen two continents and i still didn't understand that the maranth were so new to the empire's like arsenal of allies and stuff Mm. but now being so far removed i'm like really like god i want to know so much more about this society i really and like anthropologically i want to know more about them you know, I, I it's so they're so interesting. Um, but I read that and I did have a gut feeling. I was like, ah, I'm never gonna. They're gone. That's how I read it. I definitely read it as just like, well, this is it. 
This is, you know, the Morath. Yeah. This is Twist kind of just honoring them and their appearance in the story, you know? Yeah. Um, not that, I don't know. They, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? All right. Um, Josh, let's uh, maybe, do you have any others you want to pick out in particular? The last thing I want to say mm. is the, tw- the last epigraph is 25, and it's talking about whis- the betrayal of Whiskey Jack. The painting by the dude with the talking frog, or is it a talking turtle? I think it's a it's a frog. It's a frog. So that dude, and I that made me actually wonder: Do you has Steve ever? Is there any official artwork mm. for Malazan outside of book covers, or and are those even official? I don't think there's official you know? artwork, but you should check out. Have you seen the French book covers? I've heard. I know some of the other country book covers are crazy. I haven't specifically looked at the French ones. Yeah, they're by this dude. I think his name's Mark Simonti or something like that. Don't quote me, but it, they're really fucking good. I think they're up to a lot of them. And then the limited press ones, they're really good. There's some really great. Oh, mem- mem- I'm looking at memories of ice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is not. I don't think this is. Is this French? Mark Simonetti. Yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. But listen. Um, wow, that's good. But but my understanding is that there is not a definitive rendition of any of this. Right, right. That's um, interesting. I, I, I would, it made me realize I would love a Betrayal of Whiskey Jack, you know, painting to be. I'm sure it's out there. And if someone knows of a good one, please let me know. I feel like especially after the recurring painting that we just talked about in Midnight Tides, I'm really just trying to... It definitely is just like a meta thing about art, right? But... Yeah. Anyway... Yeah, so let's let's close it up so we can get into my uh, my betrayal of Josh Baker. Um, Fucking pissed still. <laughs> um, we had to rent it. <laughs> I thought you said she owned it on DVD. HR owns it, but she had brought a box of DVDs back to her mom's, and she didn't realize it was in there. Oh my god, so we had to tragic. Rent it. Yeah, I know, it's livid. Anyway. There's special features. I'm glad I didn't, I almost tried to find the special features online, but I was like, nah, nah, nah we don't need to get that far. Listen, let's save it for the segment. So uh, my, uh, my, in closing, you know, I mentioned I thought it was, a, you know, did, did less for me, you know? And I think that's because I was so hot on the last one. You know, I, you know, it's fine. These are fine. I But I found them to be mostly pragmatic kind of uh, informational ones, you know? Which is one of those things that sometimes, Josh, if you uh, ever revisit different parts of these books, you know, there usually there actually is a fair amount of information and exposition, but sometimes it's just hard to actually sift through and maybe not delivered, right. you know, that way. Right. So I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't know. Didn't uh, didn't didn't leave as big of a mark, but I'm I'm curious to see if we're gonna feel the same way when we get to House of Chains, you know. But mm-hmm. part of me feels like House of Chains has less new stuff to introduce. Do you know what I mean? How much new stuff gets introduced in House of Chains? Hmm. I mean, it's a great question. I don't know. Some. So I can definitely think of some stuff at but, the beginning with Carsa. Beginning with Carsa. Yeah, but I feel like Memories of Ice has so int- it doesn't introduce a lot of stuff, but they have so many stuff that so much of the book is only is stuff that was referred to obliquely in Gardens of the Moon. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So anyway, any closing thoughts out of you, JB? No, I pretty much agree. I thought it was fine. Yeah, it was fine. So, like, Memories of Ice, great book. The epigraphs, yeah. 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 They did what they had to do. They did what they had to do. But, like, the book is better than its epigraphs, I'll tell you that. Yes, that's true. That's true. No. 
All right, everybody. Well, that'll do it for us today. Tell us what you think of the show. We're 10 Very Big Books on Gmail and Twitter. And uh, see you. Roll that credits music, baby.